everybody. Welcome again. This is the second uh, live conversation, live stream that we're going to be having, uh, having this week. Uh, if you didn't, if you kind of missed it on Tuesday, had a really fun conversation as well. And so having uh, jumping into another conversation here on Thursday. And today we're going to be talking about how, some practical ways in which we can have conversations, right? Tuesday was how do we talk to our kids about Jesus with Natasha Crane. Now it's kind of how do we talk about we to are, skeptics? Well, yes, we well, hey, and oh my goodness. This is the second, Why uh, is it playing? Conversation, live stream. That Something is playing. Oh, <laughs> never had that happen before. All right. I accidentally had another window open with the, uh, with the YouTube video. So I went live and started playing. All right. So here we are. Let's try this all again. Uh, that's the problem of doing things live. But anyway, so how do we have conversations with skeptics? How do we ask good questions? How do we really build relationships and getting to know people rather than simply just having arguments and fights? And so doing that and, and joining me to kind of explain and kind of go over some ways in which we can build meaningful relationships and have conversations with people who hold to different worldviews is Tyler Ellis. Tyler, thanks for joining me on the show. Thank you, Ryan. It's a privilege and honor. Yeah. So Tyler reached out to me and uh, and said, hey, you know, he wanted to come on and, and do the show because Tyler has a unique story. So he had talked and interviewed 50 different people who hold the different worldviews and really learned a lot through these conversations and ended up getting the opportunity to go on to a and do a TED Talk uh, on kind of this topic. And he gave a TED Talk. Uh, which was originally titled Jesus is Not a Role Model, which we'll get to here in a little bit and talk about that. But they ended up re renaming it Finding Meaning in Daily Acts of Good. And so, you know, we're going to kind of talk about that, but mainly what he learned uh, through these in these conversations and interviews with 50 different people of different religions uh, to maybe help us better know how to ask good questions, how to figure out what people believe so that we can share Christ with them. You know, Tyler has been in lots of different ministry and nonprofits, and right now he's part of a nonprofit, Let's Start Talking, uh, as a social director of that. So Tyler, thanks again for coming on and maybe take a second and tell uh, people a little about a uh, little bit about your history and kind of what you yeah. are doing and kind of why this is something that you maybe started or, or got into is having these interviews and conversations with people of other religions. Okay. Yeah. So I did some apprentice missionary work in just out of high school for a couple years and then uh, did my Bible degree. And then I was a college minister for about almost 15 years. Okay. So lots of experience on campuses with students and professors. And then as of the last two years, I've been the associate director of what's called Friendspeak, which is under the umbrella of a 40-year-old nonprofit called Let's Start Talking. Okay. And so what we do is we train people how to have conversations with internationals who are trying to improve their English. So we have these reading sessions where we actually read the Bible with them. And so it's all about just letting the word be the teacher, us asking questions. And so I love it. You know, I, I got into campus ministry because of international students. And there's a million in our country right now. Yeah. And there's refugees. And so, so yeah, one of the things I did as a campus minister back at the University of Delaware was there for about five years, was I just, you know, you mentioned, Ryan, you know, arguments. And, you know, when we think about talking to people with different beliefs and backgrounds than our own, uh, a lot of people just don't do that at all. Yep. A lot of people are intimidated by it. You know, you imagine that, that iconic uh, water cooler at work, you know, where a lot of those impromptu conversations happen. 
And some people just avoid the water cooler altogether because yeah. they don't want to be asked a question they can't answer. They don't want to be put on the spot. They don't want to be humiliated. And really that that spontaneous conversation uh, area isn't really designed to accomplish something. People that aren't going to change their whole worldview at a water cooler, you know. But when we can take it to a scheduled conversation, mm -hmm away from that spontaneous and just kind of move it to, hey, that was a good question. What do you say we get together for coffee when we have some time to really dig deep? I'd love to hear what you believe, how you arrived at those conclusions, and, you know, not give you what I call a 10-cent answer to a million-dollar question. Yeah. So, yeah, I uh, had this idea to interview a bunch of people I actually spent about two years so probably every an average of two weeks for two years I would interview a college student uh, from many of the states or uh, international students different religions um, professors on campus and just some fun random ones in there I think I interviewed a five-year-old once and uh, a man who was homeless and yeah, different religions. And I loved it. So I would take him out for coffee, ask him 20 questions in one hour. And I would really just ask the questions and listen. Yeah. I would record it on my device and they signed a media consent form. So I could record it and then dictate it. I put it on a blog that I had at that time so that other people could read what their perspectives were. And so it was an amazing experience. Man, it, it, it turned into what I call unexpected adventures and yeah. discoveries. And I kind of stole that, that phrase from a book by Mark Middleberg and Lee Strobel. It's called Unexpected Adventures. And that's the best phrase I've heard to explain what can happen when you intentionally set aside time to befriend and learn from people who are different than you. Yeah. And so, I mean, in, in the TEDx talk, I share some of those adventures. You know, just basically, I became friends with a lot of those people. Yeah. You know, went camping together, got to introduce s'mores to a couple international students who, who'd never heard of it. <laughs> and uh, just having those fun experiences, you know, playing in the snow when, when this friend from Vietnam had never seen snow in his life. Yeah. Um, going on a spring break trip to Honduras to work at a children's home and serving pancakes alongside, you know, a Muslim professor and a rabbi at midnight during finals. And, and then one story, which was quite amazing, was, uh, you know, one night at 3 a.m. I got a call from one of the students I interviewed who who was a, about to attempt suicide. And of all the people she, she could have called, you know, she called me. Hmm. And it's, it it makes you wonder, you know, like, why why'd she call me? Yeah. I'm just the guy that interviewed her. But something about that experience and that conversation and the topics that we covered, you know, she... She reached out, and we were able to track her down that night, and, and she's alive and well today. Wow. She's married. She's a mom. 
and she's a Christian. Yeah, that's incredible. Yeah, those were some great, great adventures. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, there's a few things that, you know, kind of stick out to me because, well, the first is you said, you know, you, it's not just the, the quick response. It's not just the here's the 10-second answer, which is what you often get on social media. It's what you get when you're trying to engage people online. It's what I, you know, kind of happens with when people comment on my YouTube videos. And it's like I'm trying to explain, but I would much rather sit down over a cup of coffee, right? In fact, if you see on the screen right there, my website, Coffee House Questions, right? This is my entire ministry started with this idea that myself and some other missionaries in the Dominican Republic, launched a coffee house where we wanted to have people come in and just be able to discuss issues and discuss questions and sit down over a cup of coffee. And that's how, as you have described, that's how I've always wanted to have these conversations. Yeah. Like, hey, let's grab a cup of coffee, you know, and let's let's talk face to face. You know, my wife always says, you know, would you say, you know, when people respond on my videos, it's like, would you say that to him if you were sitting face to face? You know, they wouldn't say that if, if you had to sit face to face. You know, there's a lot of times maybe when it's online, there's something that anonymous, you know, hey, you know, they're not going to be able to talk to me. You know, they're not going to, you know, whatever it may be. But, you know, that often does foster these really cool conversations when we can sit down and spend time talking to people. But I love that you also kind of, you know, discuss this idea of, you know, uh, asking good questions. And that often, you know, is also kind of taken, I think, in a different way. For example, uh, I, right, my students right now, I just assigned their final project in my worldview class, and it's an interview project that they have to go find someone to interview that holds to a different worldview than them and ask questions. And sure. funny enough, that same assignment was assigned to me a couple of weeks ago in my class on evangelism, where I had to find someone to interview that held to a different view than me. And what was interesting is when I reached out on Facebook saying, hey, does any, because it's a science evangelism class. So it's like, do any of you guys have any friends who are scientists, who are non-believers that I can interview? And I made sure I said, look, this is not, uh, this is not to me to debate them. It's not to go on my YouTube channel. This is not for me to try to, you know, convert them to Christianity. It's simply to understand who they are, why they think the way that they do and what they think about Christianity. And one of the first responses I got was from someone who said, I'm willing to do the interview. Just don't get preachy at me. Yeah. And it's like, I, I'm not like this is again, this is for me to yeah. kind of ask questions. And so I wonder, you know, how many times that comes from actual experiences where in their engagements with Christians, it's trying to force Christianity upon them rather than what you said, let me ask you questions. Let me just sit here and listen to you. So I'm, I'm curious, you know, as, as maybe my students are going out trying to find people, but also people are going to be asking the same question of like, man, 50 people you interviewed, how do you, how do you find these people? How do you figure out, like, how do you even encounter these people who then you are sitting down and having coffee with? Yeah. You know, the 50 people I found, I mean, one source was just friends of friends. So, you know, being having a campus ministry on a university campus, uh, you definitely have the advantage of ways to meet people. You can go out and have a booth on the Pedway, pass out flyers, have a two-minute survey. But really, you just have activities and tell your students, hey, bring your friends. You know, so I think college students kind of have that advantage. Yeah. But even for those people who are not in college, there's people that you see and bump shoulders with every day, people in your family, people in your neighborhood, past friends that you had. And, you know, even conversations that we can have now through things like Skype and to have an influence in people, even when they're not here to actually share a real cup of coffee. Yeah. Uh, 
but, you know, just figure out, like, who is in your life? Who do you know? So there's kind of pulling from people you already have interactions with. And then there's meeting people you don't know at all. So one thing I did on campus was I would email the presidents of student organizations on campus. So you can go to any school's website, click on student organizations, and uh, they may have changed it or maybe it's case by case, but at the university I was at, uh, they list all the clubs and the officers of those clubs. Okay. So I would just start emailing them, inviting them, introduce myself, say I want to take you for coffee. Um, part of my experiment was to draw their portrait. So that kind of made it fun. And, you know, you can think of ways to make it easy to say yes to. But I think. And were you drawing during the conversation? No, I okay. would take their picture. Okay. And then I would I would draw it later because oh, okay. it, it actually takes a while to yeah. do these one line drawings that I do. Yeah. No, I wish I was one of those character artists. <laughs> but yeah. Yeah. So, you know, between the art and the coffee and just them knowing that I'm a Christian and I just want to listen. Yeah. That really was fascinating to people. Hmm. I mean, honestly, Ryan, I think that there were a lot of people who said to me, I've never had a conversation like this. I've never had a positive encounter with a Christian. Hmm. Uh, you know, a lot of people maybe don't even have a real friend who's a Christian. And so their perception of Christians is limited to, I mean, back in my childhood, it was Ned Flanders, you know, from <laughs> The Simpsons, and he's just so cheesy. Or maybe they, their, their perception is limited to, I remember several of the people I interviewed, uh, one of my 20 questions was something like, you know, hypothetically, if, if you did find answers that pointed to Christianity being true, hypothetically, yeah. what, what reservations would you have? You know, what would you do? What would hold you back? Or would you just be ready? And I remember several of those students mentioned the Westboro Baptist Church. Yeah. You know, and it's like this tiny church of less than 100 people. Yeah. But there's such a squeaky wheel that so many people who don't have Christian friends, when they think of Christians, they think of these examples that yeah. really are representative of just your average Christian. Um, yeah, and I think of too. You know, I'm I'm going back and rewatching The Office with my wife, and yeah. I can't help but to to think every single time Angela is the Christian on the show, but she is engaged to Andy. She's sleeping with Dwight. She's having sex with him. She is rude. Mm -hmm. She's mean. She's not a friendly, nice person. And like, but she is the Christian, and it's like she is the stuck up, prudent. I'm better than you. I'm whole. You know, like that's the attitude that they kind of gave her. And I go, I can't help but think every time you know we watch that show, it's like this is the character. This is the characterization of Christians that's being presented here. And so for someone who doesn't know who Christians are, they have Westworld Baptist Church. They have Ned Flanders. They have Angela from The Office. There's many different examples that are given on you know in Hollywood and movies and TV and whatnot that are just not true Christians. Yeah, so, you know, when, when I have so many people say to me, 
you know, this was a great conversation. And I always kind of got a kick out of that because it actually wasn't a real conversation because I was just asking questions and listening. Yeah. But what the essence of what they're saying was this really was a unique experience for me and I like it and I appreciate it. Sometimes I had people cry during those interviews uh, just by hearing the question. Yeah. And, and so I also had a lot of people say, man, I don't know the answer to that question. That's a good question. Hmm. And it made them want to dig deep to, yeah. to make it a front burner priority in their life. Yeah, that's good. Actually, of, of the 50 people that I had coffee with, half of them wanted to meet up again. And that was one of one of those unexpected yeah. discoveries was that that high of percentage of people would want to continue meeting with me. Some of them wanted to interview me and, mm -hmm. you know, hear my take on yeah. the same questions I asked them. But again, it was just so natural and friendly and uh, humble and respectful mutually. Yeah that we really did make a friend yeah and and what i you know accomplished something in that conversation yeah that's encouraging you here you know so you've you've given one example of you know if christianity hypothetically were true what reservations do you have you know i ask a similar question on this show all the time is if christianity were true would you become a christian yeah and then the answer is if no okay what reservations like what why not in fact that's I have one atheist just right before I called you, I was responding to him on another video I did. He's saying, what do you mean by this? Like, why is this a question that you ask? Um, I'm curious, though, what are some of the other questions uh, that you asked during this interview that, that kind of allows you to learn more about them and that they thought were so interesting? Sure. So, yeah, I love that question you just said, Ryan. Um, hypothetically, if all your questions had answers that pointed to God or fill in the blank, yeah. depending on what their question is, either a lifestyle issue or a belief, what would you do? Yeah. So that really tells you a lot about them. Uh, another question I love is, on what basis do you believe God will or will not accept you into heaven? Yeah. You know, if there's a God and if there's a heaven. So, it's, again, it's a hypothetical question. But let's just say there was a God and there was an afterlife in, you know, the typical common belief worldwide is that there's a there's a peaceful experience in heaven. And then there's not there's there's not an afterlife. You know, there's an up and a down, a heaven and a hell or there's levels or, you know, different stages of reincarnation whatever the worldview is i love that question on what basis do you believe god will or will not accept you hmm. because it really exposes the the object of their faith and so that was the major unexpected discovery that my tedx talk really focused on that question and the response where it was really unanimous regardless of their age the country they came from, the religion or worldview that they inherited or converted to. Uh, man, nine out of ten people, it seemed, said um, our acceptance in heaven depends on our performance on earth. Hmm. And to further surprise me by that was that Christians, that church-going Christians, 
are not an exception to that misconception. Uh, in other words, um, a lot of the people I interviewed, some of them were Christians or had been, mostly had been. Uh, and even outside those 50, I've had lots more conversations than, than those 50. Yeah. I've, I've conducted that question on a survey to probably a thousand people, church camps, youth groups, churches, uh, you know, campus ministries and, and so forth. Yeah. And so what I have found is that a lot of Christians and non-Christians believe that, again, if there is in heaven or a hell, that our acceptance into heaven depends on our performance on earth. So, so the same people who could tell you all about Jesus, where he was born, when he was born, who were some of his best friends, you know, how he died, what, you know, happened three days later. They could tell you all about Jesus. They have a lot of head knowledge about him. But when you ask those people, um, why would God accept him? They don't even name his name, hmm. but they appeal to, hey, I'm a good person or not. Yeah, I go to church or not. God will accept me because I keep these rules. And it, it makes Christianity just another religion of do's and don'ts with a scale. Um, my wife and I just a couple of days ago finished the third season of this TV show called The Good Place. Oh, that's a great TV show. <laughs> and it's all about this idea of you know scoring points yeah. or losing points. You make a deposit or have a withdrawal based on every little thing you do and uh, you know your motives behind doing it. And, you know, if you score enough points, then you go to the good place. Yep. So it's a very extremely common way of thinking. In fact, a lot of atheists that I'm friends with and agnostics, that is their default belief. That's their fallback belief. I remember talking to this guy in Australia on a bus, and he was an atheist. And I, I asked him some questions, you know, but what if it's true? What if you did have good answers to believe that? You'd be like, oh, well, I'm good anyway because I'm a good person. Yep. God, God would accept me because, I mean, I know a lot of Christians who are worse people than I am. <laughs> I do too. Um, and so it's, it's even among people who, who aren't yet there in their belief about God, they, that, that's their fallback belief. And, and so really the reason why I entitled my talk, Jesus is not a role model, is not to say that we can't learn from Jesus. Obviously, he's, he's like this ultimate role model. But people kind of come to view Jesus as someone who came to show us how to get to heaven instead of to be the way to heaven. Hmm. You know, he came to, to teach some stuff and do some stuff. And if we could just follow what he taught and follow his example, he's our role model. Yeah. We can get there by our merit because he's the model that we are modeling our life after. So yeah. it's totally uh, missing Jesus and grace. And then that actually was my story growing up in the church. And so that's really the essence of what the TEDx talk is about. Uh, I don't want to give away everything because I hope people go watch it. 
15 minutes. But. Yeah. yeah. And the link is down in the description below. Uh, if you want to go check it out, it was cool. And, and, um, you know, but I think it's important there. I mean, just today, and, and it's part of my lesson tomorrow, I, I, you know, we're, I'm going through the biblical meta narrative with my high school students in my doctrine class. And we are just finishing up, you know, the part two of the biblical meta narrative, which is fall. All right, so we have yeah. creation, fall, uh, redemption. You know, our book lays it out redemption initiated throughout the Old Testament, redemption accomplished with the death of Jesus on the cross, redemption applied, the work of the church and living it out, and then finally redemption completed in uh, God coming back and making this new creation. And the last part that I, I feel like I stopped on and spent quite a big time on, because you know it's interesting in your story and working with international students is that my school is an international school is, is an international school. So you know the majority of my students are from mainland China. And and uh, are not believers. And uh, and that's always funny when atheists comment on my channel and I say that and they go, yeah, right. Mostly non-Christians going to a Christian school. We don't believe you. And my students laugh at it and they're like, do they want to come check it out themselves? <laughs> but, um, you know, really hitting the the last point of, you know, what do we learn about the doctrine of the fallen is that, that we are broken beyond self-repair. And how the, the very nature of that is what makes the redemption process that God initiated all the way back into Genesis chapter three with crushing the head of the serpent throughout all of his covenants of Israel in the Old Testament to what Jesus accomplished on with his death and resurrection uh, in the New Testament is part of this understanding that you are broken beyond self-repair. Mm -hmm. Because the moment we go, I'm not a bad person, you know, what I did was not so bad and I can fix myself or I can work my way there, then why did Jesus have to die? Yeah. What is the point of Jesus' death on the cross if you can do enough things to get there and you can fix yourself? And I think it's it's that issue that, as you're saying, that many Christians don't understand. And it, I mean, maybe it's just hard for us to 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 admit it, right? <laughs> to say I am broken beyond self repair. Um, you know, I am inherently bent towards evil. You know, in my unregenerate state, like that's that's a lot. Um, you know, at least what I, and I'm curious on what you would kind of do in the conversations as you would follow up with these people, uh, you know, and what I try to help my students understand is like, we want to be people that never admit we need help. Yet we do it all the time. You go to doctors because you get sick and you need help and you need them to help you. You go to an airline because you need help getting from one place to the next and you can't fly, you know, you don't want to try to, you know, try to swim across the Atlantic. Uh, you know, you, you, you go buy cars and we, we do things all the time where we admit I can't do this myself. I need help. But for some reason, when it comes to our entrance into heaven and our ability to live well, we think that we're good enough and we don't understand this idea. Yep. So I'm curious in your conversations, you know, what, what, you know, are there times where you kind of elaborate on some of these ideas, maybe as they would interview you on how would you help someone see that heaven is not based on their good works and them simply just being able to do what Jesus did, but it's truly bowing their knee to Jesus and saying, forgive me. Sure. Well, you know, first of all, we've already talked about how prevalent the belief is uh, across the religions of the world yeah. and even irreligious defaults that uh, there's a good place and good people go there. And we get that idea because there's so many parts of our culture that works that way, where good performance is rewarded and poor performance uh, is penalized. You know, you could be on a sports team and you're either on the bench or you're a starter. You know, you could be in school 
where you get on the honor roll or you got to retake that class. Uh, I used to volunteer at a detention center and uh, we'd ask these boys, what, what can we pray for you about? And they'd say, pray for my phases. I'm like, what's that? They're like, well, there's, a, there's phase one and then if you're good enough, you advance to phase two and you get a little more privileges. And if you're good enough, then you can wear whatever you want or have a little free time. But eventually you, you are good enough to advance yourself out of that detention center. So they're always praying for their phases. Mm. And I mean, it's just everywhere in our jobs with promotions. Mm-hmm. Uh, listen to the average funeral about how, you know, someone died and they were, they were good. And it's in the books that we read. It's in the TV shows we've already talked about. It's in Santa Claus, you know, where this this uh, this apparent omniscient, omnipresent being is is seeing everything that we do. He's he's making note of the things we do, and he's he's making a list and checking it twice to see if we're naughty or nice. And if we're nice enough, we get presents, and if we're not, we get coal. And so we we naturally, as children, being bombarded with this assumption yeah. all over from every angle, then we project that onto God. We think, you know, God's just like Santa. He sees what I do. He's making his list. And there's this scale that everything is measured on. And... Uh, you know, it's interesting you bring that up because that's the exact example that's used in my textbook when it talks about some people have doubts and a rejection of God because they have false beliefs on who God is. And the ex- one example was, is people think God is like Santa, where he's always just looking in on you. And I've even heard some atheists say something to the effect of like, I wouldn't want to follow a God that just is peeping into my bedroom, always wondering, you know, worried about what I'm doing, you know, behind closed doors. Yeah. Um, you know, and it's like, yeah, that does, if God is this creeper, that's always just like watching us like, Ooh, I see what you're doing. Like, yeah, of course. Why would we want to worship him? All right. But that's yeah. obviously not who he is. Yeah. yeah. We have, we have, you know, Ryan, you, you talk about, uh, our, pers- our, our misconception or our, our presuppositions, you know, it reminds me of a story where, oh, real quick, back to your question about what questions I asked. The majority of my questions, Ryan, were just open-ended. What comes to mind when you think about God? Simple mm-hmm. as that. Yeah. And I just listen. What comes to mind when you think about heaven? When you think about hell? When you think about the Bible? And that's how a lot of those questions were. But one of my questions was, what comes to mind when you think about heaven? And I remember asking that to a friend on a road trip once who was not a Christian. We were on our way to a church that invited me to speak in Arizona. Uh, and uh, my friend, I played racquetball with him, I believe, and he's like, hey, can I come? I'm like, sure. So on our way there, we the topic of heaven comes up, and I said, hey, what comes to mind when you think about heaven? And he described the, you know, the quintessential you know, clouds and babies playing harps, <laughs> you know, the eternal boring church service in the sky. Yeah. And all these misconceptions of like, I don't know anything. I can't remember anybody. I'm like a moth toward the light, you know, whatever mm. those are. Yeah. My first question in the spirit of Greg Gokul and his tactics book, you know, yep. it's like, yeah, how'd you arrive at that conclusion? You know, uh, and, and really it always comes back to, well, I was watching the Simpsons and they're everywhere. <laughs> or, you know, the far side comics. Yeah. You know, I, I told him a, a, a 
a joke I remembered seeing a Farside comic. It was two frames, one frame had a line of people standing at the pearly gates of heaven. And Peter is there greeting people and he's saying, hey, welcome to heaven. Here's your harp. And then the second frame had a line of people lined up at the gates of hell and there's flames everywhere and, and the devil is there and he says, welcome to hell. Here's your accordion. <laughs> and so I told that story to my friend on this road trip and I kid you not, we walk into the church auditorium a little bit early so I could set up my PowerPoint slides and the worship band was practicing, warming up. And there's a keyboard and there's a guitar and right in the middle was a guy on the accordion. <laughs> I said to my friend, welcome to hell. Yeah. <laughs> but that, that story, I get a kick out of it because it just shows you how we have these these pictures of things, yep. whether it's God, whether it's hell, whether it's Satan. And we really should ask ourselves, you know, is it true? How do I know it's true? Where did I get this picture? What am I basing this off of? Yeah. And what if I'm wrong? Yeah. What if my picture is wrong? You know, it kind of reminds me of Pride and Prejudice, to use a, a non-Simpsons illustration. <laughs> Pride and Pre Prejudice, yeah, I bet I like the movie. I, I read the book, and here you the whole story. Jane Austen originally called that book First Impressions, a little fun fact. And that shows her intention behind the book was to capture how people have these first impressions. So you have Darcy and you have Elizabeth Bennet, the two main characters, and they meet. And, man, their first impression is, is a bad first impression, and they do not like each other. But their opinions and their conclusions about each other is based on so little. It's based on this first impression, this very shallow surface yeah. level knowledge. And as the book unfolds, they get more and more uh, solid information. They meet each other's friends. They learn about the generous things that they've done for others. And slowly their opinion changes to the point that they fall in love. And I think, man, what if that could be us and God, yeah. you know? What if we have this first impression of God that is just wrong? No, it's not based on, on those picketers out on the corner who are saying God hates you or, you know, Ned Flanders or, or whatever. But what if I'm wrong? And what if I dig deeper and I give it a chance? Yeah. And I let God, if there is a God, you know, I look at those claims, I test them. And I see, what does he say about himself? Mm -hmm. You know, I, I met a lot of people who, when they talk about God, they would have some negative comments. But ironically, when I'd say, what comes to mind when you think about Jesus? Unanimously positive. Yeah. People are like, oh, I respect him. Yeah. You know, and he was a, a revolutionary or, you know, he goes down in history with Gandhi and Mother Teresa and, you know, those, all those good people, you know, that, that none of us can be like, but, you know, I respect him. And so I loved on those follow-up conversations to go to verses like John 14, 9, where, you know, Jesus says, hey, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. You've seen the Father. Yeah. If you really want to know what God's like, follow me around. Watch what I do. Look at who I hang out with. Look at who I defend. Look at the sacrifices that I make. 
you know, I am showing you what God's like. Yeah. And defying that first impression. And yeah. Maybe like Elizabeth and Darcy, we could fall in love with this God who loves us more than we knew. Yeah, and I think that's just so important, as you mentioned it, of allowing God to kind of speak for himself, right? Of, you know, God has revealed himself in scripture. Uh, and so if we're trying to figure out who God is, that is where we need to go rather than in these false ideas that we often have. And, you know, I love it because I use the exact same illustration you gave about first impressions uh, in a talk I have titled, uh, you know, everyone has to start somewhere where like there are people who you know nothing about. And you're not even aware of their existence and therefore you don't even think about them. But then there are people that you learn about their existence and you don't want to get to know them because you have an impression of what they might yeah. be like. And so just because you think they'll be like something, you don't even want to try. And maybe, mm -hmm. and I, and I, you know, when I, and when I'm getting this to students, like maybe some of you are like that with God to where you have false ideas about who God is and you don't even want to get to know him based on some sort of impression. Uh, you know, and other times you, you, you know, there's people who you, they look amazing and you're like, that looks awesome. You get to know them and you're like, oh man, yeah, we are not going to get along. Right, because we recognize our first impression is not always correct. Now, but also, you know, allowing scripture to speak for itself. You know, the, a question came in from Christine uh, that relates to that, and she's asking your thoughts on this. Of you know, do you think that biblical literacy or illiteracy is the reason that even some Christians think that being good is the way to heaven? Many Christians only open their Bible on Sunday at church. Oh yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Great question, Christine. Yeah, you know, a lot of people don't read their Bible. And, you know, man, there's a verse that I love in Hebrews uh, 12, 15. It says, see to it that no one misses the grace of God. And when you dissect that verse, that short verse, in each phrase, you know, and work backwards, what is the grace of God? Who is no one? You know, and, and what is, does it mean to see to it that no one misses it? But when you, you know, among the people missing God's grace, as we've already mentioned, are a lot of church goers in Christian church buildings. One of the statistics I shared in the TEDx talk was a 2019 study conducted by the Barna Group that, that asked people, um, do you believe that if you live a good life, there's that, you know, there's a place in heaven reserved for you? That was the the essence of the question. Yeah. And uh, between people who answered somewhat or, you know, yes, absolutely, that was 44% of U.S. Christians mm -hmm. said, yes, I'm going to heaven because I'm a good person. That's almost half of the Christians in our country alone. One out of every two people. I mean, th this is prevalent. It's everywhere. So, yeah, I mean, reading the Bible is is the most basic starting point. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, you know, that too is, is just why, you know, and kind of pushing back to other interviews that I've done is just so, so relates is, you know, the question came up in my last interview with Natasha Crane on teaching your kids about Jesus. It's, you know, a lot, there's a lot of people that know the Bible stories, as you mentioned in, in your interviews, there's people that kind of know the stories and, and know these things. But when you ask a question, you know, what is heaven like? How do you get to heaven? You ask some of these deeper theological questions there's a lot of false information that people really haven't taken the time to truly understand who Jesus is, why his resurrection is important, why it matters. And that's something that we need to start even with kids. Now, I am curious, you know, or if you have something to say. 
Well, you know, back to this idea of illiteracy and, and, you know, why do people miss God's grace? And I really think for those of us who grow up in it, you know, we already talked about all of the areas in our life and in our culture that are telling us, here's how it works, and we project that unto God. But when you're growing up in church, I think Jesus is assumed to be common knowledge. It's easy for pastors to assume that. It's easy for parents to assume that. And so because we assume, oh, yeah, they're coming to church, they know that. So let's give the most airtime to stuff that, they, that we think they don't know. Or as, if I'm in, in a, this denomination, I want to emphasize the things that denominate me from everyone else. And so we, we focus in on our pet doctrines. You know, and when you grow up in that, when Jesus is assumed to become a knowledge, he actually becomes uncommon knowledge. And so we actually put our faith in the things that we hear the most, which ends up being I'm in the right place, doing the right things, believing the right things, right this, right that. Therefore, God will accept me because I'm right. And so, yeah, we have all this knowledge about Jesus. But when it comes down to on what basis will God accept you, we don't even name his name. Yeah. We appeal to our rightness. I mean, that's really the essence of the story of, you know, the tax collector and the Pharisee in the temple. Mm. The fair, Jesus, you know, Luke, Luke what, 18, I believe, Luke says, Jesus told this parable to people who trusted in themselves that they were righteous. And so the, the, the Pharisees in the story represents the audience there. They were people who trusted in themselves. And, it's, and so the Pharisees appealing to the good things they did, and then they're comparing themselves to people who are worse. Mm-hmm. You know, it's the quickest way to look good. Yeah. To say, hey, I'm better than them. Yeah. And, of course, Jesus makes the, the tax collector the hero of that story. <laughs> yeah. Who's beating his chest and saying, God, have mercy on me. I'm a sinner. Jesus said that person went home justified, innocent in the eyes of God yeah. and not the other. So it's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a point that you can't miss when you look at Scripture seriously. I mean, yeah. it's just so clear of like. I mean, you know, the woman and, and giving of, you know, her, her little copper coin or whatever it was, you know, versus the people giving everything with pride. It's like, you know, Jesus saying, like, you, you whitewash tombs. Mm-hmm. You look good on the outside, but you're full of dead bones right on the inside. And just the, what is truly uh, important in how we live. Now, I'm, I'm kind of, I'm also curious, you know, in these conversations you had, because the question that came in uh, a couple of shows ago I did on how to talk to Jehovah's Witnesses um, was kind of, it seems like these conversations kind of just run their course and then die out, right? Mm-hmm. Um, versus maybe offer some sort of fruitful, lasting, you know, maybe change or something like that. And, and I'm curious in your conversations too, because you mentioned how, you know, that what thing that you learn and that you kind of focus on is, you know, the asking good questions, help identify beliefs and barriers and starting points. And so in these conversations, you, you sat there and you simply just asked questions and you listened. And, you know, I can maybe hear some people going, but they need to hear the gospel. Like, if you're just listening to them and they don't hear the gospel, how could they be saved? Like, what's the point of, uh, you know, of, of figuring out what they believe and what their barriers are of, from becoming Christians and what their starting, starting point is if 
maybe it's not progressing. So I'm curious on yeah. with the people that continued to meet with you and continue kind of that relationship that you talked about, did you see them kind of just die off or did you see these conversations actually then turning into pres- uh, opportunities to share the gospel or to kind of have more of that yeah. change in their life? Yeah. So of those 50, like I mentioned, 50% of them, so 25 of them wanted to meet up again. And many of those turned into ongoing weekly Bible studies. Several of them, I studied with them once a week for like two years. And so they became good friends. And one, so half of the people I continued conversations with, which means one out of four out of the 50, one out of four people I interviewed actually went on to become a Christian. Wow. So 25%. Yeah, it was awesome. Yeah. So the questions was a great way to uh, get those conversations going, get those friendships going and and encouraging people to really take some significant steps forward to make it a priority in their lives. And so one of the things I like to do when I sit down with somebody is not just ask them questions but to invite them to ask me questions. Mm -hmm. And that's where you really find what things people are struggling with. And uh, I'll tell you a quick story. So there was this one college student that I met with, and the first time that we met for coffee, uh, this was not part of my 50 interviews, but she said, I have so many questions. I feel like there's no way in the world, if I had a hundred lifetimes to live, that I could ever get all the answers. So what's the point? Hmm. And a lot of times while people are asking questions, I'm I'm praying in my mind, like, <laughs> oh God, help me. I don't know how to answer this question. Oh, that was a really good question because yeah, we can't get all the answers to every question. Yeah. So how do I help this person make some spiritual progress who believes that unless you have all the answers, it's irresponsible to draw any conclusions? So what I had her do was I said, hey, go go get a little notebook. And between now and next week, I want you to write down every single question you can possibly think of. And she's like, what? You know, I can't imagine. I just got done telling you this is futile. And, but she did it. And she wrote down all her questions. And then she came back the next week, pulled that thing out of her backpack. And it was just page after page after page. Uh, black ink, red ink, blue ink, upside down, sideways. Just this collage of questions and questions and questions. And she said, again, what was the point of that? Now I just feel worse. <laughs> and I said, well, now my next assignment for you, and this is going to be really tedious, but if you really care, you'll do this. I want you to go through your questions one at a time and ask yourself, how important is the answer to this question? And prioritize them. Number one is the question with the answer that matters the most. And then number two, all the way down to a hundred plus, you know, obviously does God exist is going to be in your top five. Yeah. Whereas 
did Adam and Eve have a belly button? (laughs) It's way farther down. Yeah. So my point in having her do that, and she did that exercise. So when she came back, I had her take her pen and start at number one and run down the list. And each time she came to that question, she asked herself, could I ever have a relationship with God without this answer? So does God exist? Well, no. I've got to know the answer to that question before I can have a relationship with God, obviously. Yeah. Number two, has God revealed himself? You know, or is the Bible true? You know, you know and uh, did Jesus raise from the dead? So, you know, I had these big questions. What about evil and suffering? You know, for everybody, their top five is different. Uh, but for her, she got about five questions down before she struggled with one. It was like this gray area. It's like, uh, okay, I guess I don't have to know that. And then all of a sudden, what was like a hundred questions that overwhelmed her and made her think, what's the point of even attempting to find these answers, was now down to five. Hmm. She, and she, it was just this weight that lifted from her because she was like, oh, wow, I guess I could probably you know, get to the bottom of five instead of a hundred. Yeah. You saying that I don't have to have the answers to all this other stuff to cross that line of faith and, and have a relationship with my creator. I'm like, yes. You know, yeah. some of those questions can wait. Yeah. So that was a very liberating ex- exercise for her. Yeah, and I think that's just so important just to, you know, with an encouragement just to, you know, anyone who's listening is, you know, how do we really focus on the basics? How do, or not, the, yeah, and the most important, right? And, and we can spend so much time, and this is what we talked about in my conversation with uh, Tim Barnett on Jehovah's Witnesses. You can spend so much time to talk about, you know, whether you should celebrate birthdays or not, or whether Jesus was crucified on a cross or a, a torture stake, or, you know, whether, you know, uh, you should donate, blood, you know, have blood transfusions, or how many people, you know, there's 144,000, who are they, and all this kind of stuff. And, you know, yeah. those are fun conversations to, to figure out. And, and there's a lot of fun stuff that we figure out, but really... You know, whether Jesus was crucified on a cross or a torture stick, the fact that he was crucified and rose again is more important. Uh, the fact that God exists. And so it is important. And, and you know, as, as we go out and have these conversations of being able to say, okay, how big is this issue? Can you trust in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior with what you believe to be true about him? Um, and then, look, I got the rest of my life to to dig into these other questions of what I find yeah. to be important or not. Um, and then, you know, and also I think it's good to to recognize the, and what I often have to respond to people. And so, if, you know, for those questions that come in that are like this is, why didn't God? Now you mentioned Greg Kokel's book on tactics. You know, one thing Greg Kokel says all the time is, you know, when someone says, why did God or why didn't God? He often responds, I probably can't answer this question. Because to answer the question, why did God or why didn't God? Well, I can only know that if God has told me. Yeah. Why didn't God create us like this? Well, we don't really have answers to a lot of those questions unless God is saying, here's the reason why I did these things. And so I think a lot of questions that are presented are ones that we simply can't answer. And I think we have to be careful not to punt to, well, I can't answer that when there's questions that we should be able to answer. 
But then also what is actually truly important and what is kind of secondary that, hey, that's fun to talk about the age of the earth, but the fact that God created is more important. Yeah. You know, and those sort of things. Now, um, you know, and yeah, I talk about that with eschatology and all, you know, it's different things of like, as Christians, we should be able to disagree, uh, but center around, you know, mere Christianity. What are the basic core Christian doctrines? Now, I'm assuming that... um, that this kind of approach is maybe not something that you've always done. You mentioned you've been in ministry a long time. Did you start right away in ministry, sitting down over coffee, asking people uh, questions, or is this something wish. that like you <laughs> kind of developed later on? Yeah, uh, I wish that uh, I could have watched my own TED talk a long time ago. <laughs> in fact, it, I was reminded by something you were saying. Here, here's something I used to do. Before I actually came to put my trust in Jesus, uh, I would take this approach where let's just say I met with a, a Mormon, for example. And so what I would do is I'd get a piece of paper, I'd draw a line down the middle. So there's two columns. So on the left side of the page, I would list all the things that I believed they were wrong about, you know, ranging from big things to totally trivial stuff like, can you be an elder when you're not even married and you're 18 years old? Just totally <laughs> ridiculously trivial stuff. Yeah. And so then what I would do is I would try to convert them from the left side of the page with their wrong answers to the right side of the page with all the right answers. And here's the book, chapter, and verse that proves it. And I, I used to do that. You know, oh, there's this terrible verse. I think it's Matthew where Jesus said to the Pharisees, you travel over land and sea to make one convert, but you make him twice as much a son of hell as you are. Mm. It's probably the brutalest thing he ever said. And that really steps on my toes. Uh, So what I was what what I came to realize was, was that if a Mormon is lost, what makes them lost? Is it because they're wrong on all these things, or is it because of sin? They're lost because of sin. Same same thing for me and you. What makes a person lost is not them being wrong on a list of things. It's sin. And then what makes a person saved? It's not having all the right answers to those things. It's Jesus. And so really focusing on what makes a person lost and what makes a person saved helped me in those conversations focus on Jesus and and not all the other stuff. Because what I found was is that a lot of people, a lot of Mormons, for example, are putting their faith in that list, that system of beliefs. The object of the faith is is often those things they believe and those things they do, because they're believing and doing it rightly, they are saved. They'll go to whatever level of heaven they're shooting for. And so for me to convert them from one list to another wasn't bringing them to Jesus. It was just revising the list. So they're just as lost as they were before because they still haven't dealt with the sin and put their trust in Jesus. Their trust is in the list. Yeah. And so that approach, I think, is common. I've seen it in apologetics books and evangelism books. I did it. I've heard of other Christians, pastors, professors doing that approach. And it's scary because you think of like Galatians 1, 6 through 9, it talks about not preaching another gospel. 
And we do that when we put things on a list and say, if you, you can't know God and be saved unless you're right about this, unless you're right about that. You know, you have to be right on all this stuff. So it's Jesus plus this, plus that, plus this, plus that. We're perverting the gospel. So we have to really focus on Jesus. And we do, I do it now, today, I, I do what I call the sharing the premature gospel. So once I ask lots of questions and I invite them to ask me lots of questions, now it's our opportunity to say, hey, do you want to tackle these together? Do you want to go at your pace? Do you want to read books from different perspectives and interview people, you know, and be friends in the process? And for those people who say, yeah, let's do that, then I will actually share the gospel at that point up front before we tackle those big questions. And the reason is, is because I've often found, and this is not everybody, but a lot of times uh, people don't have the will to tackle those questions when their misconception about Jesus up front is wrong. Yeah. Up front, when they think, when I look down the, the end of this journey, hypothetical answers to my questions, if it points to God, I still don't want to go there because that just means that I have to be good enough. I have to clean my life up. I have to be perfect. And that takes the wind out of their sail. There's no motive and incentive to drive them to want that to be true. But when you share that gospel and you dispel those misconceptions up front and they have these breakthroughs of like, whoa, if that's true, I want that to be true. Let's tackle these questions. Mm -hmm. And it just puts this gust of wind in their sails and makes them want to investigate. Wow, very interesting. Now we only have a, just a couple minutes left in our time. You know, uh, you, you, you talk about, you know, they have these illustrations that kind of help make people make sense of Jesus for the first time. Maybe do you want to share one of those illustrations yeah. very quickly? You know, we have about two minutes. Sure thing. So yeah, one of them I call the cockroach illustration. And so I ask people, what would happen if you kill a cockroach? And people say, uh, nothing. You'd have guts on your shoe, clean it off. There's no fee. You're not going to jail. You know, it's a buck. Uh, but what happens if you kill a person? Well, the penalty is much greater. The penalty increases according to the value of the one offended. So a bug is worth very little. A person's worth a lot more. Mm -hmm. And so if you offend the bug, the penalty is small. If you offend the person, the penalty is greater. And so if, if this is the bug and, and this is me, well, God on this scale, he is infinitely more valuable than we as people. The illustration is not meant to say that God views us as bugs. <laughs> the illustration is meant to show that if we're consistent with that logic, and the more valuable the one is that we offend, the greater the consequence, the greater the penalty is, then what happens when we offend an infinitely holy righteous being? Yeah. We, the, the, the penalty is equally infinite. Yeah. We, we can't pay it. There's nothing we can do to, to satisfy the justice of God. So that's kind of part one of that illustration. It's just meant to say, oh, man, I can't do anything. Yeah. Part two 
is you draw a column next to God that's, that's Jesus. And he, he is equal to the value of God his Father. And so because of his equality with God the Father, and because of his sinlessness, that is what enables him to take the penalty for our sins upon himself. And so many times, I know that's kind of a quick version of the illustration. Yeah. People can check it in the TEDx talk. Is I've had so many people just have these major light bulb moments in that simple illustration when, when they see not only where we stand with God, but what, why Jesus' death is so significant, what he actually accomplished because of his equality with God and his sinlessness that would enable him to take death upon himself yeah. for everybody, satisfy the justice of God, and open his arms uh, forgiveness yeah. to those who would trust in him. Yeah, awesome. Well, Tyler, I so appreciate you taking this time. Uh, man, it was encouraging to me. And again, just kind of hearing ways in which other people have these conversations and ways that we can really get down to the gospel and help people see the true picture of Jesus. Uh, I pray that it was an encouragement to those who are watching just as much as it was encouragement to me. So just thank you so much for what you do and taking the time to have this conversation. Thank you so much. Yeah, and then I have all your links listed below. Um, Are there other places, kind of what people can find, uh, what you're kind of doing and what you're working on? Yep, btylerellis.com. You can watch the TEDx talk there and follow me on Twitter. I got his Twitter handle right here and the website is below as well as it was on the other screen. So again, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks, Ryan. Thanks, everybody. All right, guys. And as we sign off, I just want to remind you again, hopefully you are encouraged by that, but remind you again, uh, this Tuesday, I'm going to be having a conversation with Dr. Jeff Myers from Summit Ministries. He just came out with a new book titled Unquestioned Answers, Rethinking 10 Christian Cliches to Rediscover Biblical Truths. So that's going to be the topic of our conversation. What are some 10 kind of Christian cliches that we believe and what are the biblical truths behind it? That is going to be this Tuesday, I believe at one o'clock Pacific Standard Time. So you can subscribe and check out that link as well as the interviews that are coming up. Have a wonderful rest of your day. God bless and go out and be ambassadors of Jesus Christ, reaching people where they are. God bless everybody. Ah. Uh...